Good morning. Welcome to the house of the Lord. Those of you joining us online, good morning to you also. If you have your Bibles, please turn to the gospel according to Mark chapter 12. The gospel according to Mark chapter 12. We will take verses 13 through 27. And would you please stand now for the reading of God's word. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and Herodians to catch him in his words. When they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one, for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God in truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? Shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. So they brought it. And he said to them, Whose image and inscription is this? They said to him, Caesar's. And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's, and to God the things that are God's. And they marveled at him. Then some of the Sadducees, who say there is no resurrection, came to him and asked him, saying, Teacher, Moses wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Now there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring, and the second took her, and he died. Nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So the seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died also. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures nor the power of God? For when they rise from the dead... They neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. But concerning the dead that they rise, have you not read in the book of Moses, in the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. He is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. You are therefore greatly mistaken. Please be seated. Immense Fools, that's the title of this morning's consideration. There are lessons for us on how not to be. I do not want to be a fool, and I certainly don't want to be an immense one. Uh, These are from his own words. You're greatly mistaken. They challenged his authority earlier, as we just a brief review. He had come into the temple, and he had cast out the money changes. The, the, the people that were ripping the people off in God's name, he turned their tables over and caused them uh, embarrassment and trouble. Uh, they then came to challenge his authority with questions, and he, before answering their question, questioned them, and their inability to answer was made clear to all the bystanders. He then told a story about criminals in the vineyard, men who were entrusted with a vineyard that was not theirs, and they turned violent so that they could benefit from the wealth of this vineyard. And, of course, they knew that he was using this parable to point to them. After that parable, he quoted Scripture, 
saying the stone which the builders rejected, that is the chief cornerstone. That became the chief cornerstone. Yahweh uses what the builders rejected to be a key part of his project, the essential part of his project. Without it, there's no completion. Of course, there's no salvation without the Christ. Well, they understood that he again was talking about them rejecting him. And so, in their infuriation, they, they plotted ways to have him arrested so that they could have him killed. Mark writes in the 12th verse of Mark 12, and they sought to lay hands on him, but feared the multitude, for they knew he had spoken the parable against them. Well, they were guilty. What makes them so foolish is that they were actually guilty and they knew it. It wasn't as though, you know, well, that's his opinion. All the evidence pointed to them, but they preferred the way they lived over the life that he offered them. Now we look at verse 13 and we reread that verse. Then they sent to him some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to catch him in his words. So having silenced the chief priests and scribes and the elders, beginning in chapter 11, uh, he now is confronted by another coalition. And it will be the Pharisees and the Herodians and the scribes, and well, the Sadducees first, then the scribes. They will come and try to trip him up. A series of challenges to an attempt to discredit his authority amongst the people and also to incriminate him with the Roman authorities so that they could do their dirty work for them. Luke writes this, he says, So they watched him and sent spies who pretended to be righteous, that they might seize on his words in order to deliver him to the power and the authority of the governor. You know, when we're going through the life of, well, First and Second Samuel, and just finishing up First Samuel and looking at the life of Saul, you look at his life and you say, who, who lives this way? Who is this incredibly dark that they behave like this in the presence of so much light? It's the same here with these, these people. How could they reject the Christ? What if he came with no miracles, just truth? Well, then they just would have debated him. But he came with more than just the truth. He came with the power of God. And that just didn't mean anything to these men because they were determined to be in control. And it is a, a, a horrific thing. We need to pay attention to what's going on. And here in this coordinated attack, in hopes of halting his influence as it is done today, the world looks to censor us, to shut us up, to keep us from influencing people towards righteousness. And in the age we live in, it's, it's, it's like, unlike ever before. They want to corrupt without interference. And purity and righteousness have become evil to them. Well, in all three cases, as Jesus deals with these, this next group, the Pharisees, Herodians, Sadducees, and scribes, he is going to silence them from Scripture. He's not going to just say, well, I disagree, or just reason with them. He is going to reason with them, but he's going to do it from the Scripture. For him, Scripture was good enough. It's sad to say. 
For many Christians, Scripture is not good enough to live by. Uh, they want some sort of a freedom, I guess, that the Bible does not magically give, and so they, they go and find uh, something somewhere else. Paul had this problem in the New Testament church. It was a big problem. He writes to the Corinthians, he says uh, to the Colossians, watch out, lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit according to the tradition of men, according to the basic principles of the world, and not according to Christ. He's saying stick with the scriptures. There are going to be people that are going to come along and they're going to have all of these philosophies and teachings and ideas and methods, and they don't work. And you can chase them for the rest of your life or you can skip that step, not supplement what God says. Take up your cross and follow the Lord. When Paul said to Titus, holding fast the first faithful word as you have been taught, and he went on to say, convict and rebuke. Why didn't he say make happy, make comfortable? Because we're dealing with sinful things. And if you appease the sin, the bad moods, the awful ways, you end up having the world in Jesus' name. And so in churches where pastors uphold the word, many of those churches look to get rid of that man and then ultimately get rid of the Bible altogether. We're seeing it happen all the time. Paul continues, he says, For in him dwells the fullness of the Godhead bodily. He's got everything you need in life for life. I mean, not to, you know, he doesn't have the instructions on how to change a flat tire. He's talking spiritual things. Me, how I live, how I think, how I feel, how I sin, how I serve, all belongs to him. And he says, you're complete in him, who is the head of all principality and power. He's got it all. Knowing scripture to know life. And just because you don't feel good doesn't mean the scripture's not working. That's what faith, that's where faith comes in. Who needs faith if everything just falls into place? We are at war against the curse. And Satan coaxes some churchgoers to rid pastors who are fixed upon the word of God to fight from the word of God. Remember Saul King Saul, again, he had thrown out of the land all of the witches and all of those who were practicing idolatry, as many as he could. But there were still some there who were doing it. And in a moment of desperation, where does he go? He goes to the witch at Endor. And the witch at Endor is still doing business amongst desperate churchgoers to this day. My, where I'm going with this is these men did not think Christ was sufficient. They wanted to be rid of him. Well, Satan knows he can't direct or come directly to some Christians and say, Christ is not sufficient and you need to do it this way, though. He does with apostates. He's more sneaky than that. That witch at Endor, you might remember, she gave Saul a free meal. It was very nice towards him, very caring, very kind, but death followed. And he did not survive the next day. Why have a Bible if it is only for salvation? It is not only for salvation. Instruction in righteousness that the man of God may be complete, thoroughly equipped for every good work. 
I know, you hurt some of you. you. You have troubles in your life. I don't have to itemize them. You know what they are. That is not your cue to turn on God's word. It's not a lantern that you rub and smoke comes out and forms itself into a genie. It is a book. It is our manual for war. And unfortunately, these kinds of sermons, it seems like the people who need to hear them most find a way to be absent on the days that they are preached. It is heartbreaking to any pastor of the word to see people claim Christ and not believe in the scripture. And Christ, again, he says that you are mistaken, greatly mistaken, not knowing the scriptures nor the power of God. You see how he connected the two together? And then you have a man of God step in the pulpit and say, you have the power of God. Beware lest anyone cheat you through philosophy and empty deceit in the traditions of the world. And went, no, pastor, we've tried the Bible. It doesn't work. It doesn't work what? Take up your cross. Trust God. He, he will come. He will show up. Suffer for a little bit. Life is hard because it is Cursed. And we are to make it through, trusting the Lord, believing the Lord. I, I, my prayer in my latter years here of ministry are, Lord, help me to love your people the way you love them. Because without you helping me to love them, I won't love them. I'll resent. I'll become jaded. Any pastor will make that prayer. If I cannot love the flock... You know what God says, if I, if I do not love, I am nothing. Well, I don't want to be that. So I will pursue love, the love of Christ. And Paul writes to Timothy, uh, Titus again, and he's, this is the same apostle that wrote of love. He says, holding fast the faithful word as he has been taught, that he may be able by sound teaching both to exhort and convict those who contradict. Contradict what? Scripture. Which these men were doing with Jesus. So I hope what I'm accomplishing here is showing you that. In the light of this song, I think, the song of Don Francisco. He was talking to the hypocrites and Pharisees and everybody else but me. Of course, it's being sarcastic. We're not just reading about these men coming to Christ back then and it has nothing to do with us. It has everything to do with us. It is very relevant to right here, right now. It's not expired. I better read these words and say, Lord, is it I? Am I doing these things? In verse 14, when they had come, they said to him, Teacher, we know that you are true and care about no one for you do not regard the person of men, but teach the way of God and truth. Is it lawful to pay taxes to Caesar or not? So they came to him lying. They're lying to him. These things are true. He does not care enough about what people say to turn back on what his father says, what the scripture says. That is true. He is not going to play favorites. Uh, well, he's good. God is his favorite. He is, of course, God the Son. But they're trying to flatter him as they set him up. We know you're going to give us an honest answer because you're such a godly man. And they're trying to exploit that. These are insults woven into otherwise noble words. And these men were 
intellectually and emotionally committed to wrong things. They enjoyed it. They liked what they were the way they lived. They found nothing wrong with themselves. The scripture they had reduced to this uh, chart that goes along with their religion. They enjoyed opposing him. They relished the thought of discrediting him, of being done with him. They say here, and you care about no one. Well, that's not true. Not true at all. The Son of Man came to seek and to save that which is lost and bring the truth of God to the people. But the truth of God came before opinions and feelings, and again, that's what many folks don't want to hear. They want Christ to agree with the way they want to do it, and if he does not agree, they'll find a way way to get away from him or to try to leaven the lump. And so it is not true. He is with, he has compassion. And just because he leaves things on us does not mean he does not care. And some still uh, try to equate standing firm against their beliefs with hatred. They think you hate them if you don't agree with them. That's a shameful thing to, a place to be in one's life. I have every right to disagree with anyone at any time and not hate them at the same time. I can do that. I do not have to show malice to someone because I disagree with them. And what if they don't like it? Well, they'll either have to live with it or they're going to attack you. Well, they're attacking him. They did not say, well, you know, that's Christ's opinion. No, they are trying to destroy him. And so they ask, is it lawful? Now, this is not reference. Uh, this is referring to the Roman law, yes, but also to the Hebrew scripture, mainly that at this point. They're saying, is it lawful according to the law of scripture? For us to pay taxes to Caesar. Because does this not conflict with the sovereignty of God? By paying the Romans money, are we not demonstrating our servitude? He could have said, yeah, because this is the punishment on you for forsaking the Lord with your many idols whom the prophets constantly warned you not to do. But you did it anyway. And so they say, is it lawful? Now, Caesar here, that they reference here in verse 14, refers, of course, to that Roman emperor. Tiberius was the present Caesar at at this time. Verse 15, uh, shall we pay or shall we not pay? But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, why do you test me? Bring me a denarius that I may see it. And so he's fully aware of of what these these guys were were up to. And uh, the question is, Is it a crime to pay taxes to Caesar being God's people? Now, the Herodians were present, and and they were pro-Roman. Therefore, had Jesus said anything against paying taxes to Rome, they would prosecute. And that would be just what uh, this coalition was after. Had Jesus said, no, we should... uh, 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 we, we, we can pay these taxes, then the Jewish people would have come against him. They knew that when they were asking this question. They thought they had him trapped. How can he get out of this one? There's no right. This is a lose-lose situation for the Christ, they thought. Although they would not have thought of him as the Christ. It says here in verse 15, But he, knowing their hypocrisy, said to them, Why do you test me? Because we don't like you. That's why. We don't like what you have to teach. We don't like what you say about the way we live. 
That's why. Now, this denarius was a silver coin, about a day's pay for a laborer. He says, bring me a denarius that I may see it. He did not carry cash, is what it boils down to. And so we just briefly review this. At his birth, uh, when his parents went to, well, Mary and Joseph went to the temple to make their offering for him, they offered the poor man's offering, turtle doves. That's all they could afford. And here, when, uh, in, in, in his life, as he grew up and he was challenged on paying taxes, he had to send to the sea to get a coin because he didn't have it, and he paid taxes for himself and Peter. When he entered Jerusalem, he had to borrow someone's donkey. And to make his point here, of course, he borrows a coin. And at his death, at his death, he had to borrow a, a tomb for the weekend. Every beast of the forest is mine, says God. The cattle on a thousand hills, they belong to him. And yet, when he walked the earth, material wealth was not something he was interested in. So who do you think you are if you are one of those who claims that God wants you rich in this life with money and wealth to flaunt? And you know who you are if you follow, and probably not in the sanctuary, but maybe online or listening later on the radio, if you follow the so-called prosperity teaching, which is no spiritual prosperity whatsoever, then you follow the deception from hell. Your life is to serve Christ and not yourself, and uh, we could beat on that all day long, but will the guilty listen? Verse 16, so they brought it, the coin, and he said to them, whose image and inscription is this? And they said, Caesar's. He wanted to hear him say it out loud. He knew whose inscription was on the coin. He wanted them to say it loud so that the witnesses could hear the answers out loud. Tiberius Caesar, the august son of divine Augustus, that's the inscription around the image on that coin. These coins are available today. You can buy them for about $1,500. At least I, I checked online. Um, if you would like to buy one for me, just give me the cash and let me do what I want to do with it. Uh, no, I don't want a gift card. I want cash. But anyway, whose image is engraved? Who's carved? Whose image is carved on this? What is the inscription on this coin? Which means, whose image is carved into you? What is inscribed upon me? Is it Christ or is it Caesar? He was asking them, is it the image of Caesar or is it the image of God that you're interested in? Is that where's the question coming from? Of course, they have no answer when he when he gives the answer. Colossians three again. Put on the new man who is renewed in knowledge according to the image of him who created him. We are created in God's image. And yes, the fall occurred and marred that image. And being born again involves having that image restored to us here as in a deposit. But finally, of course, when we get to heaven, Spurgeon says, Our Lord Jesus, by his death, did not purchase a right to a part of us only, but to the entire man. All of us. We belong to him. And that's where the fight is. And when Paul writes to the Colossians, incidentally, 
He likely never visited that church. Epaphroditus comes to him, who was the pastor of that church, and he says, we have a big problem. The Gnostics are mixing in their teachings. They're coming to that church, and as they come through the doors, they're bringing their invisible sacred cows with them, and they are mixing and leavening their teaching into the congregation. How do we get them out? Paul writes the letter to the Colossians, and that letter is about you have Christ. Stop doing this stuff. You have the image of Christ on you. You don't need these things that are being brought in by those who are trying to salvage something of their paganism. In verse 17, And Jesus answered and said to them, Render to Caesar the things which are Caesar's, and God to God the things which are God's. And they marveled at him. <laughs> they didn't see that coming. They thought this was a conundrum. He'll never be able to answer this one. His teaching makes it clear that if you're going to follow the Christ, the, if you're going to follow God, then you're not going to be caught up with the things of Caesar. At least if, if you do, you're going to resist them. And so as Jesus said, render to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and to God the things that are God. And they marveled at him. That in the Greek, it means they were impressed. They admired his answer. answer. What else could they say? They were so ready for him to be stuck. Even if he said, I don't know, he would have been answering as they answered him when he said, uh, you know, uh, the, the question that he asked him about John the Baptist. I don't know. Well, that wasn't his, the way he handled this. The sad thing is, well, first off, some bystander noticed this on their faces. Some bystander, part of this event, saw that they were blown away by his answer. The problem that comes from out of this, a lesson, is that one can be very impressed with Jesus Christ and still not submit to him. Unbelievers attend churches from time to time and they are very moved and impressed with the sermon, but they stay unbelievers nonetheless. They don't convert. These men were impressed. So what? There's a lesson there to tell an unbeliever as you're sharing them to Christ. You can they're nodding their head in agreement. This is, this is wonderful. I tell me more. And you can say to them, I am going to tell you more if you will let me. But the question is, will you convert to Christ from the world? Or are you just going to be impressed and go to hell marveling? Verse 18. Then some Sadducees who say there is no resurrection came to him and they asked him, saying. Now here's the next wave of the coalition. Remember, Luke said they plotted to, against him, how to bring him down. And uh, these magnificent fools that they are were quite proud of their skepticism and their unbelief. It tells us right out that they denied the resurrection. They did not really have any use for life after death. They also did not believe in spirits and angels, miracles in general. And yet they claim... They claimed to believe and uphold the first five books of the Bible. And only those first five books. They had no interest in Joshua and, in the, and Isaiah and the prophets. It's just the books of Moses. That's why Christ is going to answer them from the book of Moses and not from Daniel and Job. And we'll cover some of Jan, Daniel and Job. So, they claim to uphold the authority of the written law. Is that not odd? 
No, not for the religiously faithless. And there are many that are religious. They like religion. They love ritual. They like all the things that go with religion. Except obedience. Except conforming and submission to God's word. The revelation of God. And true obedience has little value in their lives. We see it when the high priest, Caiaphas, is conspiring to hire people to come against Christ, even if they're lying, he doesn't care. And that speaks much to us. Matthew, at this point in his account, a parallel account of this event, says that Jesus said to them out loud that they were hypocrites. In other words, he was accusing them of living their lives on a stage, that the way they lived was not, what you saw as far as how they lived was not real. It was rehearsed. Now, there are some that can live on a platform, and they can be real. Incidentally, where I am standing on this elevated platform, it is not a stage. It is a platform. It could be called a chancel, if you want to be fancy. Um, But it is not a stage where there is no acting going on. Uh, Some attempts at humor have been attempted from here, and sometimes successful. Uh, Anyway... Verse 19, teacher, now here they are, they're getting their religious face on. Moses as the, wrote to us that if a man's brother dies and leaves his wife behind and leaves no children, his brother should take his wife and raise up offspring for his brother. Well, this is part of the Mosaic law. He, the brother is not obligated Although there's some social shame that accompanies it, if he denies, it's Deuteronomy 25 is where they're drawing this from. And the idea is that if your brother marries someone, and you could be married also, and your brother dies, how is she going to survive? And to keep it in the family, your brother's possessions and his name, and even it connects to the line of Messiah because the two events we have in this of Scripture from Genesis and Ruth have to do with Judah and the, and the Messianic line. But other than that, just in the, the social uh, benefits to this, well, what was she supposed to do? There was no welfare program. She could not always go back to her home where her father was. They were trying to survive themselves. They married her off. and they, Okay, we have one less mouth to feed. And so uh, this law existed, the firstborn, that she would have if she remarried to to one of the brothers, was to take the the deceased brother's name. And this, of course, would preserve his name in Israel. His property would transfer to his son, and it would not be lost on someone else. So there were great merits to this in that economy. And we can't look back from how we live now and sneer at them. (coughs) Pardon me. This system goes back even before Moses. As I mentioned, it was found with one of the sons of Jacob and Judah and Tamar. And so the the story of Ruth is based on this law. And so they're trying to bring this law up to him, and we have much to say about how they're doing it. Verse 20. Now, there were seven brothers. The first took a wife, and dying, he left no offspring, verse 21, and the second took her, and he died, and nor did he leave any offspring, and the third likewise. So seven had her and left no offspring. Last of all, the woman died. Leave it to these miscreants 
to come up with such a distasteful conundrum. I mean, this is just, this never happens. But they created it anyway. And you're supposed to answer things, you know, hypothetical questions. Well, I can answer them hypothetically, but he's going he's to take them to the Scripture. But wouldn't there be an ominous regularity going on with this <laughs> that would arouse suspicion and say, you know what? How many of my brothers have died marrying you? Yeah. That's why this would never happen. <laughs> Their twisted story. It would take courage to be husband number three. <laughs> Half a dozen of them die. I think the townspeople need to investigate. So I do not believe for a moment that this is based on a true story. One or two husbands, yeah, maybe, in, in the family. But, you know, that's just, you start moving down. The guy is saying, I'm not marrying her. Uh, no way. This is a black widow kind of a thing. <laughs> Verse 23. So here, the, here comes the, their punchline. Therefore, in the resurrection, when they rise, whose wife will she be? For all seven had her as wife. What a low view of women and cynicism towards the resurrection. Life after this life. That is what is, is coming out in this. And it's seated in their disdain for accountability to God. Unbelievers have a reason for rejecting the truth. And this, um, these men are no different. Uh, do people really think that the resurrection means life continues where it left off after you die? I mean, do you think there's going to be a Chinatown in heaven? A little Italy? Uh, I mean, there'd be nice restaurants. I mean, do you really think that? That's insane. Like, maybe I'll come visit you in your neighborhood. Uh, it's, it's going to be something so glorious. Paul said it would be a crime to try to describe these things to you. I caught a glimpse of it, Paul said. It's just amazing. And that's it. I can't say any more. So, these men, uh, well, verse 24, Jesus answered and said to them, Are you not therefore mistaken, because you do not know the Scriptures, nor the power of God? Now, he's not impressed with their grotesque scenario. He's not like, ooh, that's a hard one. <laughs> it marked their insensitive way of thinking. We see this in some other religions, you know. You'll get 70 virgins when you die if you blow yourself up killing other people. What kind of twisted, sick stuff is that? That should be twisted and sick to anybody, not just Christians. Just saying, would you like that to happen to you? Uh, would, would you like that to happen to your daughter, to be stuck with somebody who blows himself up when he gets up into the next life? The whole thing is madness. But they'll blow you up for saying that. Anyway, this insensitive thinking of theirs out in the open before them, and the Lord must, his heart, part of it must have broken, another part was just like this. This is so ridiculous, it doesn't happen, and you know it. But the Dunce Committee, they have to be answered. And that's how it is in life. You just can't always ignore the Dunce Committee. And uh, they thought this successfully disproved the resurrection. You ever talk to an unbeliever and they smugly think they've got you, and then you shoot that down, but they don't repent still. They go back to the drawing board like wild E. Coyote, blueprints under their armpits, and try to figure out another gadget Instead of just saying, you know, maybe I better dress like a rabbit and just change sides. Anyway, 
the sick things human beings will believe once they reject the truth of Christ. He says, are you not therefore mistaken? So he has a question for them. (laughs) Uh, You know, what is going through their little heads? Who cares pretty much? He says, because you don't know the Bible. Are you not wrong because you don't know the Scripture? If you knew the Bible, you wouldn't be wrong like this. But you don't know the Bible, and you consider yourselves custodians of the Bible. And so his reply is biblical. It would be like saying to Einstein, is that your theory? And you call yourself a scientist? Pretty dim-witted. That's right in in their faces. He's not, you know, it's pretty heavy stuff to say to this group. They had no excuse for their ignorance. They were what we call today uh, liberal theologians. They picked and choose what to believe from the Bible. And we have them today. They're in universities. They're in seminaries. They're in churches. They're in pulpits. And they tell you, well, that part of the Bible is not true. But this part is. Well, how did they become the way, the truth, and the life? How did they become the Holy Spirit? Whatever you don't like in the Bible, just edit it out. We have them trying with this with homosexuality. Well, Jesus never came out. Yeah, he did. When he said, don't think I came to destroy the law and the prophets, but to uphold them. And the prophets and the law, they condemned that kind of behavior as they did many other kinds of behaviors. But yet, they, um, of course, they are drunk with their brand of religion. And so... Uh, in, the, in their case, as mentioned, as mentioned, they accepted the writings of Moses and no more. And they were very proud about this. And they argued with the Pharisees and the scribes over these things, two different schools of thought. And uh, that uh, leaving out, believing only the books of Moses, leaves out a lot of scripture. So Christ called them ignorant. Why? Because they were. That's why. It's not meant to just, I'm just going to strike back at them. I'm going to call it like it is because I want my disciples to know these men, regardless of how they dress, regardless of what claims they make, regardless of what credentials they have, they are ignorant, not because of the credentials and the dress and the claims, but because they reject the scripture. That's why they're ignorant. Get up in my face telling me I'm such a good boy. And then give me some sick scenario like this. And you can't even back it up with truth from your own Bibles. The sections that you will accept. And so he's again going to take them to he's going to take them to task on that. Willful ignorance of scripture. Willful ignorance of scripture is is the cause of this. And it is intolerable with God. Why should God tolerate willful rejection of what he has said? It's one thing to say, Lord, I'm trying. I agree with you. I'm, I'm just we can't seem to get it done. And a whole nother thing where you say, No, I don't like that, and I don't want that, and that's wrong. Uh, This this dumbification of the religious leaders, it is a joint venture of devil and man together. He says, nor the power of God. What kind of God did they worship that did not have power to resolve such a problem as what they were presenting? You would think they, they would say to themselves, well, he look, he shot down those guys about the coin. I think we shouldn't ask him any more questions. Let's just go home. But no, they don't do that. They come at it from another angle because they think they were smarter than the first group to begin with. Their question would catch him. But again, what kind of God would be able to give life and have no power to care for life after this life? What kind of God would that be? 
you'd have to worship not the unknown God, but the itsy-bitsy God. And that's who they bowed down to because it was a God of their own creation, a God no larger than themselves. That's what an idol is. It is a creation of something no larger than yourself. Psalm 115, verse 8, those who make them are like them, so is everyone who trusts in them. Point blank, nothing to add to that. It says what it needs to say. The God who can give life to the universe is not stopped or halted by death. And yet they don't believe that. Would you want to be these people's neighbor? I mean, the way they think. Is it any more remarkable that we should live again than we should live at all? It's a miracle that we have life at all. And all the complexities that, are, that encapsulate us, that come from us, that go into us. We are very complex in a positive and a negative way. And yet, God is in total control, has it all under his control. And he, no matter what, we know. See, again, they wanted to avoid accountability at death. So they just factored it out. Verse 25. For when they rise from the dead, they neither marry nor are given in marriage, but are like the angels in heaven. He does not say if they rise from the dead, but when they rise from the dead. He's not giving them an inch. The whole idea of procreation, you know, Adam and Eve, they were told to be fruitful and multiply. A good principle. Be fruitful, then multiply. In that order. And, uh, of course, there was no hurry to have children because there was no death. What changed everything, what, what <laughs> accelerated everything and twisted it at the same time was the sin. Now humankind had to replace humankind because people were dying. And this is the, the purpose. In heaven, there will not be that need. God is populating heaven now with humans that have come to him. And when he gets the, the quota that he is assigned to it, then comes the end. And then he'll even get more from the millennial reign. He knows what he's doing. We accept that. So verse 26, he says, but concerning the dead. In other words, I want to get back to this with you guys. That they rise. Have you not read in the book of Moses? See, the book that they claim to believe in. In the burning bush passage, how God spoke to him, saying, I am the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob. Now, so he goes to the Bible, part of the Bible that they accept, the burning bush passage, which is a direct experience of Moses. Uh, just to shut them up, Exodus 3, Moses, he said, God speaking to Moses, moreover, he said, I am the God of your father, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, the God of Jacob. And Moses hid his face and was afraid to look upon God. Too bad they didn't have that same reaction to the scripture, that sense of high reverence. Saying, I am the God of Abraham. Uh, present tense, again, I am the God of Abraham. Not, I was the God of Abraham. The Bible is clearly teaching this. I'll get into some figures of how long these men had been dead when Jesus said this in a moment. But how come, so, so maybe you're not, you're listening to this and you're saying to yourself, well, where else was the second witness in Scripture? Well, Daniel chapter 12. 
And many of those who sleep in the dust of the earth shall awake, some to everlasting life, some to shame and everlasting contempt. We look at this and we say, that's God's word. God is saying that there is going to be a judgment after this life. They rejected the book of Daniel because these things kind of shot them down. Job's brilliant reply to Bildad. Bildad, is that a, is that a sentence? Hey, Bildad. You know, get dad to pay for it. Okay, anyway. I thought it was kind of funny, actually. I just saw that, and it just, I'm going to write that down. <laughs> Bildad is sneering prediction. Job, you're going to die. You're going to die very soon. That was Bildad. And Job, Job answers him. This is Job's reply to that prediction. We know it. Most of you know it. Job chapter 19, verse 23. Uh, uh, let me, not, I don't want to go that much because... I know that, verse 25, I know that my Redeemer lives, and he shall stand at last on the earth. And after my skin is destroyed, this I know, that in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold, and not another, how my heart yearns within me. You want me to die, Bildad? I can't wait for it. Because then I'll see God, and I'll be rid of this life and the curse in this flesh. So we who look at this, we say, well, we disagree with the Sadducees. We believe all of the Old Testament as the Word of God. Daniel and Job alike, as well as Genesis. But the Lord doesn't quote Job or Daniel because these men would have said, ah, they would have scoffed. We don't believe in those books. Paul, when he writes later, he's still dealing with their teachings. It so influenced the Jews and even some Gentiles in the churches outside of Jerusalem. And so he writes the 15th chapter of 1 Corinthians saying, look, if Christ is not risen, then our faith is in vain. But he goes into the whole thing about the resurrection. In Galatians 3, he says the law that Moses received was given also by angels. Angels were involved in the, in the revelation of the law of God. Details withheld. And then to the Thessalonians... Many of them, their views of life were, were less than what God wanted them to be, as the Sadducees taught. He writes this, I do not want you to be ignorant, brethren, concerning those who have fallen asleep, a euphemism for those who have died, lest you sorrow as others who have no hope. Well, Paul is saying we have hope, and we're not ashamed of our hope. These were sophisticated fools, these men, professing to be wise. They became fools, as Paul said. Verse 27 he is not the God of the dead, but the God of the living. And you are therefore greatly mistaken. Uh, we, see, it, it kind of loses some of the punch when we just hear you're greatly mistaken. You made a big mistake. It's like you are a buffoon because of your position to tell a man of, men of this stature in society and religion to tell them they are greatly mistaken. Is a heavy hit. It goes back to like telling Einstein. Is that your theory of relativity? It's moronic. <laughs> that's what it would be. Not that I'm, I'm saying that was true of Einstein, but imagine saying that to him. When he spoke these words about the burning bush and he references these men, Isaac or Jacob had been dead for 200 years. Isaac for 225. Abraham for 330 years. And yet God still says he's the God of the living, not the dead. Those centuries did not take away their life. It just relocated it. And that's what death does. For the righteous, we get tucked in. 
when we die, we are just, uh, you know, uh, Jesus made it very clear. He who believes in me shall never die. You transition. I, I mean, I, I just can't wait. It's, I, have some, I have some fears. I've said them before. I don't want there to be, you know, um, orientation. <laughs> I don't want to get to heaven and have the notebook and, and, you know, I'm wearing a rookie hat. I want to go in imparted that I know where to go. I know where my bed is. And just things, not that there's going to be beds in heaven, but I want to know where I put my stuff, and I don't want anyone to tell me. I don't, I don't want anyone to say, do whatever you do. Do not go through that door. I just want to know what to do. I mean, I, now don't get me wrong. If there is orientation, I still want to go. <laughs> but I just don't I want it. And I think this is a... A gift. Anyway, I get back to the you are greatly mistaken. What stands out about that? I'm almost done. I still remember my, my time didn't start for 40 minutes until after the announcement. Uh, this you is what stands out. It, it says you. I'm, I'm talking to you, not that guy over there. You. It's, it, it, this is directly to them. You don't have a clue because you're ignorant. And you're ignorant by choice, and that makes it immense. You are an immense fools. You've seen what I can do, and you look the other way, as though it doesn't count. God does this to this day. He does things even for unbelievers. And we say to them, God has demonstrated his presence in your life, and you still look the other way, and you think he's supposed to be fine with that? As you trample his word? He will not be fine with that. He will be insulted with that. He does not excuse them. The evidence for the resurrection was available to these men from their scripture. And they turn their nose up to it. Because after he hits them with this, they don't say, Whoa, that is really Bible teaching. I want to come under that. No, no, they're not going to do that. They're insulted that he's right and they're wrong. What is so-called rationalism against God really is dishonesty before God. It is not rational. It is not a mental problem. It is a moral problem. It is not a head issue. It's a heart issue. It's I will shut my heart down and instruct my head to spend the rest of its life coming up with arguments against the truth that I know is in my heart. And that God says, I'm not good with this. I will have none of this. Yeah, this is the greatest era of them all, and God is filtering out through this life those who love him from those who don't. Two verses and a closing comment. Matthew 25, all the nations will be gathered before him, and he will separate them one from another as a shepherd divides his sheep from the goats, and he will set the sheep on his right hand, but the goats on his left. Everybody knew what he was talking about when he preached that. Uh, chronologically, he's not yet said that. Uh, Matthew captures it. It's after the events we're considering this morning. But he had said it earlier. And so they were immense fools for treating him as they did. And he pointed it out to them. And so do we. And when we point it out to people, they will either convert or attack in some form. Let's pray.
Our Father, you hold up these things before us because you're very serious about the future that awaits everyone who is born. You are so serious about the future that you sent your son to die a shameful and painful death so that sinners would have a way of being sin-free and experience life as you intended it to be and so much more. We ask that you, we who believe, ask that you give us a heart of love. That we would be patient when we need to be patient, gentle when we need to be gentle, but firm always with the truth. That we would be intolerant of those things, those sacred cows that the world holds sacred, but we must not. We pray, Father, that you will equip us to be Christ-like to have your image inscribed upon us, your words inscribed on us, your image stamped on us. If you're listening this morning and the image of Christ is not on you, it is the image of the world or something else, maybe it's your own concoction, and you want to be free from that enslavement of self-worth and self-righteousness and come into the light of God and His righteousness, and his love, then all you need to do is convert, make the confession, change teams from the world to Christ. If you say this prayer with me in earnest, God will receive you. Lord Jesus, I am a sinner. I've broken your commandments, and I ask you to forgive me. I give you my life right here, right now. I side with you. And I ask that from this day forward, you would be not only the one that saves my soul from judgment for my sin, but also the one who rules over my life, both now and through all eternity. I give my life to you. And now, Father in heaven, if anyone has made this prayer this morning, may they not be ashamed of it. May they not back down from it. May they be very much in love with you. May your spirit fill them. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.